Welcome to the Hell of a Catholic Podcast. I'm Father Josh Allen, chaplain at Georgia Tech. This is Alex Carroll. I'm a focus missionary here at the Georgia Institute of Technology. This is Davis Hayson. I'm a fourth-year biomedical engineer here, and I'm getting out this May. Getting out, getting out this May. Well, uh, today we have decided to tackle a huge topic that none of us feels particularly adequate to talk about. Alex is particularly frightened. I never um, said frightened. I just said, yeah, I'd let Davis talk more. It's more humble. I'm being humble. Humble. Instead yeah. of humiliating myself. Yes. Yes. Humiliating yourself. It could that be prudent. I with. Prudent. Hey, better to... Uh, prudent. He's definitely not being prudent. Better to keep your mouth closed and appear an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? Uh, I Who think said that's that? Mark Twain. Yeah, Maybe? that sounds like something he would say. Maybe someone else, I don't know. So today we are going to talk about uh, the sacrifice of the Mass. So we could do lots and lots and lots of podcasts on the Mass, um, but what we thought we'd do is actually talk about the sacrificial nature of the Mass, um, which I would say actually just as kind of an opening salvo, um, I don't know how many Catholics would have heard of the Mass described that way. As a sacrifice? I mean, they've definitely heard the title, title right? Like, the yeah. sacrifice of the Mass, but if they've ever thought, like, yeah. wait a second, this what is a sacrifice, about? right? Which is a weird imagery that comes to mind when you hear sacrifice of the Mass. Kind of kind of sounds cool-ish. But isn't, like, the popular imagery today... I mean, it's funny, because I don't, I don't see other parishes, right? Yeah. I just kind of do my own thing. But, oh, I'm sure there's some parishes where but it's... But, like, it isn't, like, people... And you hear it in some of the... Some of the prayers in the Missal do say this, so it's not inaccurate to say that it's, like, a, a communal meal. Right? Well, it is. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of think about it that way, right? Mm. And yet you have this sort of sacrifice idea going on. But my guess is if you asked even educated Catholics, what is the sacrifice of the Mass? Like, when does it happen? Mm. What is it? Like, what's actually being sacrificed? Even if they, even if they believed that there was a sacrifice happening, my guess is most people couldn't describe it. Right, they couldn't give you any sort of intelligent answer. Mm. Um, they might be able to say, "No, no, no." Somewhere in the Eucharist, that like that's the sacrifice of the Mass. But when you talk about like, okay, well, what's actually happening? What's being sacrificed? Mm. Who's doing the sacrificing? Um, how does it all work? Yeah. So Davis has okay, been doing well, research on this. So we're going to let him. We're going to let him lead all this. Yeah. <laughs> how so does transubstantiation so work? So we got to start this out with the fact that I'm only about half done with that book you gave me, Father. <laughs> so, so maybe about half of what I say so is going to be heresy and the other half is going to be good. But um, Only half yeah, heresy so, is still like 50% better than what we do on a normal basis. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I guess I guess the, the sacrifice of the Mass would be um, an unbloody representation, actual representation of the sacrifice of cavalry. Okay, what is an actual representation? It means that it is really present, like mm-hmm. in a, in a, I don't even know if this is the correct word, ontological sense. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm asking you five. So are you thinking that's, uh, do you think you just made things clearer by throwing the word ontological out there? Well, no, seeing as I, I had to ask you if I used it correctly, then probably <laughs> not. <laughs> you're the one leading this. You make yeah. your statements, and I'm yeah. just going to, this is how it works. Like, you're going to make statements, and I'm going to pick. Okay. That's what I do. Okay. Shoot them down. Okay. Um, I'm going to watch. And this. It's like clubbing baby seals. Yeah, that's baby probably, seal. probably about wow. right. Um, 
<laughs> Father Josh is going on a cruise. I do not, I do so not support clubbing actual baby seals, but Davis, on the other hand. Metaphorical so baby we, seals. So the sacrifice of Cabra is present in, an in, an, in a um, is made re-present in an unbloody manner um, to us. And this is, this is denoted under the separation of the body and blood on the altar. Now Christ is present in his glory, correct? Like that is his, his flesh and blood is present to us under in his glory, but it is still um, the sacrifice of Calvary that is made present. And this stems, this goes back to the um, the Last Supper where the first Mass was said, um, which is tied to Calvary in various ways. I'm getting nervous. <laughs> All right, so just you know, because I'm having fun, the face I'm following, the yeah, it's not helping. Doesn't help. Yeah. Do you feel like for our listening audience, do you think you helped both of them understand? <laughs> probably the sacrifice of the mass. Probably not. I mean, so like, I mean, I guess it depends on what was not understood. I mean, the it's it's Christ through the priest is offering up himself, right? In this, so I think stuck. what we've established is this mm. is hard to talk about. It's yes. mysterious, right? It's, it's hard to talk about. It's not this day. hard to talk about, right. but it's hard to talk about. Let's talk first. What what happened? Forget about mass. What happened during Christ's passion, death, and resurrection? What happened there? Like. What was I mean? We all, we know the events, right? Mm -hmm. right? We know the events, so it's not about the events, but what actually happened in those events? Uh, Christ took on the sin of humanity, and okay. in his crucifixion, died for all of our. So sins. when we say he took on the sin of humanity, what mm -hmm. do you mean? Uh, yeah, that's, that's where I get kind of fuzzy. Not really fuzzy. It's sort of hard to wrap your mind around the fact that Christ died for all sins, past, present, and future that would ever take place on Earth. Those sins that separated us from God originally in the Garden of Eden, originally in the original sin, and died to pay that price. That's in Romans, whatever says, the wages of sin is death. Um, so Christ paid that price through his death, through his godly sacrifice. So I'm going to leave aside the whole problem of paying the price for something. Yeah. Right? We could talk about atonement. Atonement's a complicated thing. Yeah. So we have to admit, right, right off the bat, we only have like mm -hmm. probably 20 minutes left on this podcast. You cannot cover all of this, right? Yeah, so right. there's it's mysteries that are going to be dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. um, when Christ takes on sins, okay, when does he do that? Does he do that at the incarnation? Mm. When he takes on flesh? Ooh, I don't know. Does it start there? No. Does it? Does it? What do you think, Davis? This is weird. This is the thing. When you really start thinking about it, yeah, I don't know. we all say Christ saved us from our sins, right? Yeah. Well, what do we mean? Because if we're going to represent the sacrifice, he takes him on. What's when we the, sacrifice? In the sacrifice? What's that? Does he take it on when we participate in the sacrifice? No, just a shot in the dark. <laughs> is, is there a specific moment, or is this a trick question? I think what we would say. So there's going to be lots of different different <laughs> oh, opinions okay. on this. Okay. Sure okay. okay. So well, no, no, no. But I mean, I'm going to give you a preponderant um, sort of Thomistic opinion. Okay, give me right. But we do have to understand, like the church has said that Christ, in his sacrifice, took on our sins mm -hmm. and has paid the price for them, has forgiven them, that we participate in that sacrifice through the Mass and sacraments, all that kind of stuff. They've said lots and lots of things like this, but in terms of exactly how it happened, the Church has not has not spoken about that, right? There's lots of opinions about it. Okay. Um, 
one opinion that's kind of a sort of scholastic divide things up opinion, mm-hmm. which helps us understand things, sure. is that Christ takes on the sinfulness of human nature at his incarnation, at his birth, yeah. okay. right? Okay. So that's where he's now having to deal with concupiscence. He's having to deal with all these things that are the inheritance from Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. But at his actual passion, um, passion yeah. right? And some people say that he's taking it on. There's no real one moment. Some people say the whole point of the agony in the garden is right. he's taking on. That was going to be my sins, first guess, right? actually. Right. Yeah. Is that he's kind of assuming all the guilt of all of the sins that ever have happened. So not just original sin, but like every little sin that somebody commits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when like little Joey, uh, you know, disobeys his mommy and then comes into first confession and says, I disobeyed my mother, right? Yeah. So he took that one on too. And he took on every single murder that Hitler created. Yeah. Or not created, but uh, every single murder that Hitler uh, performed yeah. or had performed right. during uh, the Nazi regime. So he takes on the weight and the pain of all of these sins, right? So then we know that as he's going through his passion, as he's carrying his cross, as he's kind of receiving this false judgment of guilty, right? That he's being claimed as guilty for a sin he did not commit, right, Mm -hmm. by Pilate, but also, in a certain sense, being falsely accused of all of these sins have ever occurred that he did not commit. He carries those in a cross, is nailed to them, and the sins themselves are the medium by which he dies, um, although he dies according to his own will. He sure. can't, nobody could take his life from it. Right. All right. So there's two moments then, I mean, according to this one theory, of mm-hmm. taking on sins. One is sometime during the Passion, the Agony of the Garden. Some people would say he had done it before the Passover itself. Yeah. But nevertheless, we'll say the Agony of the Garden. And then one he takes on. At his incarnation himself, itself. So, so Christ at some point has taken on all sins. What happens at the Last Supper? The institution of the Eucharist. Right. He he says, "This is my body. This is my blood." And it, for the as part of the Passover liturgy, he says, "He as the I forget the name of the cup, but a specific cup." He says, "This blessing is cup, cup of blessing." He gives it to his disciples, saying, "This is the cup of my of the." Of my blood, blood of the New Testament, um, which we pour out for you and for many for forgiveness of sins. Yeah, so what, I mean, there's actually a really, really great video. It's an old video, and I don't know if he's redone it or anything. Scott there's Hahn. an old video by Scott Hahn That's called good. The Fourth Cup. It's still out there. It's, it's still video. there. I, mean, I think yeah. we showed it to RCIA people this year. Yeah, we showed it about once um, a year. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great video. But yeah. he puts, he kind of contextualizes the whole Last Supper within the context of the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. Right, so what's so before we talk about Last Supper, then what's the Passover meal? What's that all about? Uh, it's a traditional meal celebrated by the Jewish people, uh, signifying the sort of original Passover of the Spirit of God uh, taking the firstborn child of Israel, unless they had the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb uh, on their doorway. Yeah, right. So, so the people are going to be saved of the tenth plague of Egypt. Yes. So yes. Moses has been has been uh, going to see Pharaoh. And God has been causing these plagues to try to change Pharaoh's mind mm-hmm. to let the people go to go and worship him in the desert, right? Sure. right? This is before. I mean, God didn't even require, like of Pharaoh, God didn't require that he set the people free. Mm-hmm. He yeah. just said, you have to let yeah. them worship. They can still remain your slaves. They can build your pyramids. They can build your cities. But you have to let them worship the one true God, right? He wasn't interested in their occupation. Yeah, He wanted their hearts. 
but Pharaoh won't do it. So God actually liberates them even from that kind of slavery so they can be freely um, open to worshiping him. So the 10th plague is God says, all right, finally, after all these nine other plagues, Pharaoh's still being an idiot. So I'm going to go and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every animal, of every human being, of every household. And so this angel comes through the night and he kills the firstborn of every animal, every goat and sheep and everything, and of all of the families. And Pharaoh's own son, right? Pharaoh's own son is killed. Except for the houses of the Hebrew children, or the Hebrew people. And what they're supposed to do is sacrifice a lamb and paint their doorways with its blood. Then the lamb they're supposed to roast. So this lamb that's been sacrificed, Mm. that they've now marked their households with, right, to save them from the punishment due to sin, right? The punishment that God is going to visit upon the people because they will not allow for free, true worship of God, right? So he's going he's gonna to visit this punishment upon them. Again, always in mind of opening their hearts, turning their minds and their hearts to God, right? But he's going to save the people who mark their doors, the entrance to their very home, the foundation stone of their family, right? Right. As long as they do that and they mark it with the blood of the lamb, then they will be saved. This very lamb, they're supposed to roast. And they're supposed to roast it in a way that it doesn't taste good. Mm-hmm. Right? They cook it with bitter herbs. It's yeah. not like they throw garlic and onions in it. We were talking <laughs> about that earlier. Like this awesome stuff that makes everything <laughs> taste good. No, they intentionally cook the lamb and eat it in a way that it doesn't taste good. Right? And then they burn the rest of it. Yeah. They make unleavened bread. And the reason it's unleavened is because in order for bread to rise, it takes time. Right? I mean, right. to make a loaf of bread an actual work, there's maybe only... 40 minutes of actual work to make a loaf of really good bread, complicated bread that has to rise five, six times, right? Mm -hmm. But all you got to do is roll it out. You press it down, you roll it out, and then you let the yeast work again. But it could take two days. Mm -hmm. Like some some breads that we make today take two days to make, right? So it's unleavened because we don't have time to wait for the yeast, right? Right. There's an urgency to this departure. There's a, a limited window of opportunity. There's only a small amount of time in which God has opened the door for these people to be free from the bondage of their captors. We can't be waiting for bread to rise, right? So it's unleavened. They eat this meat that doesn't taste good. They take the bread, and then they leave. But the Passover supper is all about that that meal, that meal that they have in preparation for leaving slavery, right? For For this departure from slavery. And so... We step forward to the Last Supper, and now we have this this meal, right? Passover is this remembrance, right? Is a remembrance of that meal. It doesn't have any sacramental significance. I mean, it's not like the Jews did not believe they were eating God's sure. body. They mm-hmm. it was a, it was a, it was a lamb. They're recreating in mm-hmm. a certain sense, in almost like a dramatic sense, like you'd see right. in a play mm-hmm. or a history, right? Sure. right. They're retelling, recreating, yeah. retelling the story. It's their story. They believe it's their story. This is how God saved us, right? Yeah. It's this retelling of history in a way that stokes the imagination and the memory and helps people to understand how much God has loved us in the past sure. so that we'll know how much he'll love us in the future. That's not what happens at the Last Supper. The Last Supper, God takes this memorial, right, uh, a memory of what has happened, and he turns it into a perpetual 
memorial by adding something to it that makes it real for all time. So that when supper was ended, he took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which will be given up for you, right? Now, Christ has taken, like, they've set the lamb aside, right? At this point, they've already eaten the lamb, right? Mm -hmm. They've set this roasted lamb that didn't taste good aside, which that lamb itself doesn't save anybody, Mm -hmm. right? It saved people historically, brought them out of Egypt. Now he takes his body and this bread, this unleavened bread that they could carry with them, right? This bread that was this bread of urgency, right? He takes this bread, he says, this is my body. So now when they receive it, they're receiving the body of Jesus Christ, right? Do they realize that at the time? Of course not. Then he takes this cup. There's four cups in the Passover meal. And he takes his third cup. And he says, this is the cup of my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And they drink from this cup and pass it around. And then in a normal, according to Scott Hahn, in a normal Passover meal, there's a fourth cup. But they left right after him. The scriptures clearly say right after the blessing cup they left. So they didn't finish the Passover. So this whole sacrifice, this memorial of the sacrifice and the salvation that comes from God in the Passover isn't done yet. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it continues until Christ drinks it anew the kingdom of God. Right? I will not you know, he takes this. What does he say? I will not drink it again mm-hmm. until for the divine until the kingdom until the until the consummation of all things yeah. or whatever it is that he says. Sure. And you know, different authors will say different things, but a lot of times they say that it's um, right after he tastes the wine, the, the wine, hyssop, yeah. right? That's mixed mixed with hyssop or gall or whatever mm-hmm. you call it, right? So right after he takes this, he says, "It is finished." Right. Immediately or, after he says that. In Latin, he says it's consummated, right? Yeah. This is like, it's like actual translation, which the fourth cup is called the cup of consummation. Um, that's pretty cool. I don't know what he says in Hebrew. I mean, but I imagine it's very similar. Yeah. Who knows? And he, he's, the, so now the Passover, this meal, this thing that happened, has taken on this new significance. It now itself contains contains the power of Christ's sacrifice somehow in a mysterious way and you notice it's not the lamb the lamb doesn't matter like the the, the, the little lamb that was killed and roasted and eaten has aside. taken a second place to all of these other things that Christ talks about um, and so in mass we talk about the lamb who was slain but we know we're talking about Christ at that point mm. and <laughs> just like we know that the Hebrew people ate the lamb. We also eat the lamb, right? Mm-hmm. We eat the lamb under the form that he gave us, a form that contains this inner dynamism and this grace, this real presence of Christ, this real presence of Jesus, um, so that we're not eating just the flesh of an animal, right? We're eating God himself, who gave himself for us. I mean, it sounds so weird when we say yeah. things like this, right? right. We, this is the problem. Like, we don't think about Mass. People go to Mass, they don't understand what's happening. And a lot of times they get frustrated and they say, I don't get anything out of this, and so they leave. People that say they don't get anything out of this, they walk up and they have Jesus Christ offered to them. And they leave the church because they say, I'm not getting anything out of this. You know, And some of that's just faith, right? We don't understand because we don't have faith, yeah. and maybe we're not in a state of grace, we're not receiving anything from it, whatever, but... 
the sacrifice is presented in a memorial kind of way over all of time, any time a Mass is celebrated in any church in anywhere in the world, right? This same sacrifice of Calvary is represented in a mystical way. Now, different authors have said lots and lots of different things about exactly what parts of the Mass represent what parts sure. of, of the sacrifice of Christ, what parts of the, of the uh, Triduum, of what parts of, uh, you know, Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. And people have had different, differing opinions on this. And, I'm, I mean, we could talk about that for a long time, too, because it's mm-hmm. very interesting. But the point is, when we celebrate Mass, like, our Lord made this change to the way Passover is celebrated, right? What was just a memory becomes a living representation, a real memorial, right? A bringing to mind because it's real, right? Sort of participation in this lamb upon whose all the sins are placed, right? The scapegoat, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which is then consumed having been changed by fire. Right and our this this beautiful kind of symbolism yeah. that happens in mass. Um, people don't get it. They never think about it. It and I, I've never understood people who tell me I don't understand this and therefore I'm going to leave. There are lots of different kinds of people in the world, but I'm the kind of person that when I say I don't understand something, it doesn't make me want to leave. It makes me want to stay hmm. because I want to understand. Right. Now then, after I've really applied reason, if it really is incomprehensible, or if it's illogical, then we can identify that. But, like, I want to understand. I'm drawn to that kind of question. Some people are just kind of put off by it. Um, I think a a key phrase that you used there was the representation of Christ's sacrifice, and a lot of Protestants get kind of caught up on the Mass. Or people outside the faith looking... They think we're killing them again. They think it's a (laughs) re-sacrifice, or they think that... Yeah, we're sacrificing Christ again. We're killing him over and over again. I think it's something like this bloody holocaust, this great injustice. Um, but, yeah, like you said, the key phrase there is the representation. We are sort of like, and maybe you can talk more into this. There's something of the fact of, like, time and space sort of don't really matter uh, in this moment. They don't really have effect. Like, sort of, we are back at the foot of the cross. Would that be, like, an accurate way to sort of describe that? Yeah, it's Christ, Christ presents his... his, his uh his sacrifice in eternity, right? And eternity mm-hmm. is applied to us. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. Yeah, I, would, I, I think that's, you know, there's that song that lots and lots of parishes do. I mean, it's, I love the song. Um, I We don't do it here at uh, Tech <laughs> for Good Friday, but it's not that I don't love it. Um, but it's like a gospel song. Were you there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. Johnny Cash that's is a great, great song. Person, oh, yeah. It's a great song. Oh, yeah. Um, Are you going to sing it? No. Please? No, please don't sing. Will you sing it? No, no, no. Please? Uh, but, you know, were you there when they crucified my Lord, right? Well, the answer is... Stop it. The answer is... <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. Anybody who's ever attended Mass can answer that question, yes. Mm-hmm. I was there. So... The whole question, like, were you there when they crucified... What's the next verse? Were you there when they... Uh, nailed him to the tree. Nailed him to the tree. They, when, uh, laid him in the tomb. Yeah. Oh, come on, just Something it. about sing when he died. When they... Stop it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Pierce I was the side, there. Yeah. Right? I was there for all of that. Yeah. I'm there for all of that every time I go to Mass. In a sacramental way, in a hidden way. Like St. Thomas Aquinas the says that... Mysterium Fide, at, right? At Mass, exactly. Mysterium Fide, which is part of the words of institution in the old, right? 
Um, we separated out in the new right. It's very interesting, these things. Um, never mind that point for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas says that uh, in Mass, right, when we are at Mass, all of our senses lie to us except <laughs> one, right? What I see is bread. What I taste is bread. What I smell is bread. What I feel is bread. The only thing that I have to rely on is the word that has been spoken. Do I hear the voice of God? And do I trust him? Right? That all of our senses lie to us. And so only in that sense, right? Only in that sense of hearing. Um, only in that sense of hearing do we know that this is our Lord truly present on the altar once again, offering himself to the Father. Nobody takes his life from him. He offered his own life freely, having accepted sin and all of its consequences in the worst possible manner. He accepts all of it willingly, freely, lovingly, and offers himself with all of that. It becomes part of him. Hmm. It's not like baggage, right? It's not like he's got a basket filled with our junk that he's holding, and he's totally pure, and he's holding a basket of junk. It's not like that. He takes it all in himself, right? He takes it all in himself such that it becomes, in a certain way, we wouldn't say it becomes part of his nature, but it becomes like an inseparable attribute of who he now is. Like God has taken on sin and then offers himself as the sin offering, right? This is not a dead goat that we've put all our sins on <laughs> with our mind, right? We've said, okay, you know, goat, yes, you are responsible for my adultery, <laughs> and uh, I'm now going to kill you. I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of that. I mean, I I'm not. It's really actually a very beautiful ceremony, but yeah. um, but that's not what it is. Like, it's become part of our Lord, and our Lord has offered himself in sacrifice to the Father, and in the process, all of those sins have been transformed right they've all been transformed so all the sins that you're ever gonna commit have already been transformed in Christ and all we have to do is partake in that transformation to open our hearts and ask for the forgiveness that comes so that our sins which have already been transformed in Christ so we just have to participate can reflect in him yeah. right I mean it's already there like he's already that's why like we don't say there's nothing we have to do to earn forgiveness, right? There's nothing we have to do. All we have to do is open ourselves to it. Now, Christ tells us how we open ourselves to it. That's part of the deal, right? He says, this is how we receive forgiveness, right? Whose sins you forgive, he says to the apostles, will be forgiven. And whose sins you retain will be retained. And then he takes on the sins, and he has the right to determine how you participate in it. And all we have to do is in some feeble, weak way, go before our Heavenly Father and confess our sins we then lie by saying that we're not going to sin again, right? Knowing full well that we will, but hoping that we won't, right? Intending that we won't. Yeah. And then Christ transforms our sins so that we reflect him who has already transformed our sins. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's awesome. And people say that they don't get anything out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It blows my mind. Because they get upset because the music isn't what they want it to be. Or maybe the preacher doesn't preach so well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
or maybe it's, it's hot in the church or you can't hear in the church or there's too many babies crying or maybe it's a poor church and they can't afford really beautiful things or maybe it's a really beautiful church and they won't spend money on beautiful things or whatever it is. Maybe pe- people don't get it, but it doesn't surprise me. Our Lord walked around the shores of Galilee and people walked by him all day and they didn't get it. They walked by him all day and they didn't get it. And they weren't willing to even try. It doesn't surprise me that people feel the same way today. Well, Davis, you did a great job leading this podcast. Man, that was yeah. just brilliant. Oh, I let it I let it right <laughs> to your lap. <laughs> like, I I just, if I just if I just bumble around a little bit, then Father Josh will take over. And it's great. <laughs> then my strategy I get very, I get very passionate more. about these things. No, that was awesome. Oh, I love uh, Mass. I have a quick question, <laughs> though, so. if we have time. Um, so as participants in Mass, as someone who, as Catholics who attend Mass now, and knowing what we've just heard, um, and the great thing that is happening at Mass, how do we approach the Eucharist? Because I sometimes feel conflicted in like this sort of great joy at the same time with like, this great sorrow uh, when receiving Christ you know, in His body and His blood. How do we approach actually like the communion line? Like, How do we receive Christ? Like, What should our disposition be? Because um, you know, on one hand, you know, our Lord has just died for us, and there should definitely be some sorrow there because He died because of us. But on another hand, you know, there's this great joy because our sins are forgiven through that. Uh, how do we as humans, maybe the, the answer is like we just don't. How do we like react to that? So, like what should our mindset be? See, I think, uh, I think uh, it's funny um, how questions tend to come in groups. You know, I tend to find that people ask me questions and they all have the same kind of answer mm. for a whole period of time. And then all of a sudden those kind of questions stop and then we start talking about something else, right? Really? So lately I've been given the same answer, right? And here's the answer. As Catholics... We have to be prepared to live in a paradox. Right. We have to be prepared to live in a paradox. Right? Yeah. So we have to be prepared to hold together two seemingly opposite things and be okay with it. And recognize that orthodoxy lies in the middle of two branches of heresy. Yeah. Right? So that if I go too far one way then I'm a heretic. And if I go too far another way, I'm a heretic. So faith and works, right? Mm -hmm. If I go too far one way and I say that all I need is faith, but it doesn't matter what I do, I'm a heretic. Or I might not be a heretic, but I'm at least speaking heresy. If I go the other way and I say all I need is works, I'm just going to work my way into heaven. Sure. Right? And faith is like, no, no, that's okay. I'm not so interested in that, but I'm going to be a good person. Yeah. Right? Now I'm preaching another heresy, right? Catholics have to hold this tension. I have to say that we are saved by faith and that we are saved by works. Right? I have to hold both of those. Yeah. And we got to find a way to make it all make sense. Right? So I have to find a way to say that when I receive communion at Mass, that I am both engaging in the most joyful experience I will ever have on the face of this earth and I'm engaging in the most sorrowful experience I will ever have on the face of this earth. There was this movie I preached about it the other day. Um, there's this movie Inside Out, yeah. um, which I thought was a really good movie. Like I was surprised <laughs> at how good it was. It's I good. watched it on an airplane flying somewhere. I don't remember where. And um, you know, the premise of the movie is that this little girl is growing up with these emotions in her head, and joy is trying to win everything, right? Because that's what a kid's life is all about, right? Yeah. Little kids—they're all joyful about everything. You don't want them to be sad ever. Right. And then as the girl reaches puberty, 
all of a sudden sorrow kicks in. And we all tend to think, as you're watching the movie, you're thinking, oh, this is not good. She's going to go dark. She's going to, something bad's going to happen. She's going to start cutting or she's going to kill herself or something like that, right? Because everything's getting sorrowful. <laughs> Isn't this a kid's movie? <laughs> Have you not seen it? No. Oh, David, she got to see this. It's a great movie. My mom loves it. She's a school it is counselor. It's funny. It's yeah. really, really good. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, um, I mean, I tend to like Disney movies anyway, but this is a really good movie. Okay. Um, and by the end of it, though, what's happened is, so Joy has, you know, in the movie, they're all, they store all these memories in little balls, and, and the little yellow memories are Joy memories, and the little blue memories are, are Sorrow memories. And Sorrow keeps going around and changing all the yellow memories. It's like she has this new power hmm. that she used to not have. Like, if she touches a memory, it turns to Sorrow, uh-huh. right? And by the end of the movie, I mean, long story short, after adolescence, right, the recognition is that, you know, the fact is, we don't have memories, very many, that are purely joyful or purely sorrowful. There's always a little bit of a mix in there, right? Human beings, we have to be prepared to hold together two seemingly paradoxical extremes. I have to be able to say that a memory can make me really, really joyful and happy and at the same time be deeply sorrowful. Or deeply sad. Yeah. Hmm. Right? So the same way that I can think now about my mother's passing, how she died, and I can be deeply, deeply joyful about the way that it happened. And yet I can also be deeply, deeply sorrowful and sad. And that's okay, right? Like that's that's a mature memory. Yeah. It has right. that mix in there, you know? Our um, whole faith kinda has that, you know. We talk about we talk about like virgin birth. We talk uh Let's talk about this joyful suffering, you know, like all these all these different ideas that uh, that our church holds true. Yeah. Or another good one that will happen to you guys at some point because you both have siblings. Well, it might not happen to you. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. But um, it happened to me. Um, the person when I was growing up that I was the absolute closest to was my brother. And I remember thinking at some point in my life, I was like, man, I've got such a great relationship with my brother. Like, I hope this never changes. Right. And then he met the girl he's going to marry. And at some point, I resisted for a little while, actually. I was like, no, 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 this, this doesn't work this way. I still get my brother, and she can have my brother, and it'll be fine. And at some point, I realized, I was like, no, this is the way this works, right? This piece of him that I used to have, I have to give that up because this belongs to her, right? Yeah. And there's this, like, sorrow that's part of that. True. But there's also a great joy because I know that's the way it's supposed to be, Right? And it's still, but I still yeah, feel absolutely. joy and sorrow about it. Because I remember what it was like when I was kids. Even before, like, before my brother was really dating anybody, and we would just kind of hang out, and I lived out there near him, and we would just spontaneously go and do things and stuff like that. It can't happen anymore. And I would never want it to be a different way. Yeah. My brother's got kids. He's got a wife. They are very happy. They're like an example, in my opinion, an example of how people should live. They really are. They do a great job. But at the same time, I miss the time that I had with him before, yeah. right? So there's a mix of things. I think communion is like that too, right? Our experiences with God are complex. We make mistakes when we try to overly simplify stuff. And I think that's the problem when we start trying to answer questions in a simple way. Yeah. we got to always remember, like, it's so much more complicated than we're talking about, right? It's really, really complicated. Human beings are complicated. And we try to make God so simple, not in a theological simplicity, but like in a an asinine simplicity, yeah. right? Yeah. So simple as to be boring, right? Right. We don't accept the fact that, 
you know, things that we think are so bad might not be so bad. You know, things like sickness or illness. I was speaking to somebody today about uh, their child who is has special needs, right? And people who do not have a special needs child cannot imagine anything worse right. than having a kid, then they find out that they have autism, or having a kid and finding out they have Down syndrome, sure. or having a kid and finding out. And people who have kids like that can't imagine having discovered anything better. Yeah. Right? And yet they still have some measure of sorrow because they know their child's not going to have the same life everybody else has. And yet at the same time they're like, but I watch the life they have and I'm not sure it should be that way. Yeah. Right? Right? Like they they, they have a good life. Like why would I want them to have this other life? Like I'm looking at this life and I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) Right? Life is complicated. We try to make it simple. We try to make it mundane. We try to make it boring. We try to make it comprehensible by the human mind. Remember, one of my favorite theologians, Hans Erzman Balthasar, he used to say, or he said in one of his books, that if we're going to be theologians, we do theology on our knees in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. Because there comes a point at which you are reduced to the fact that you can do nothing to understand this anymore. All you have are complexities and paradoxes swirling in your mind that make sense only when you sit in front of our Lord, kneel before him, humble yourself, Proclaim, I do not understand, I need you, and just let all of those experiences melt away in the presence of a God who loves us so much that we can't even understand what the word love means. It's pretty good. So there you go. <laughs> so go to Mass. Thanks for, yeah, go to Mass. Every Sunday, it's really important. Very mundane. You don't have to understand. <laughs> just go. Um, just do it. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Hell of a Catholic podcast. If you have questions or comments, um, if you object to all the various things that Davis said in this podcast, um, please email us at podcast at gtcatholic.org. And God bless.